0: A psalm of Isaac, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gerbal, Ammon, and Amalek, Tosia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher has also joined them. They are strong arm of children of Lot. Do not do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who are destroyed at Endor, who became a dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possessions for ourselves of the pastures of God. O my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so that you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Lord, are the most high over all the earth.
1: Amen. Dennis Stop lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can come here this morning in fellowship and in praise to your name. Father, we ask forgiveness as we come forward this morning to hear your word, that your glory may reign among us. Lord, as a word is spoken, that our hearts would be changed. Lord, that we would recognize our sin, that we would recognize the grace and the mercy that you have bestowed upon us. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, Lord, that we may stand before you righteous because of his blood and nothing that we have done. Father, we ask that you bless this day and our time together. Again, Lord, that you would be glorified, not in our deeds, but because we resemble the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice made in our obedience to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
2: Heavenly Father, thank you so much for blessing us with this incredible day. Lord, let us come to you laying our burdens at your feet. No matter if they're physical or financial, emotional, whatever they are, Lord, let us lay them there and not pick them back up, Lord. Let us trust you that you have us in the palm of your hand. You'll guide us and lead us where you need us, Lord. Lord, thank you for this congregation in the worship team and Paul for leading us in this new section that we're going to be learning, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for sending your son to die on the cross so that we could have eternal life. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.
0: may be seated.
3: Is that on? Yeah, it's on. Good. I'm not very good with this microphone. Well, um, today we start a new series of messages. We're going to be preaching through the book of Philippians. Uh, this was on Dan's heart as we finished the catechism questions, and he wanted um, to then move into the book of Philippians because of the Overall, writing theme of Philippians, which I'll get to in a minute. And Dan has given me the job today, first Sunday of the series. I noticed he left town having done that. Um, anyway, gave me the job of giving us all a historical background and maybe some context to the epistle to the Philippians before we actually dive into the scripture itself there. But before I do that, I want to show you something that is astoundingly beautiful, not just because it's visually beautiful, and I'm not sure the screen's going to do it justice, but I want to do that chiefly because of the truth that this portrays for us. Lane, if you will switch to the next slide. Now, I'm sure this you cannot see as clearly as the detail of this portrays it, But as I was looking um, at um, Philippians and what part of the historical context would be good for us, I came across this visualization. You know, lately in the news, you've seen the Webb telescope and all of the images that are coming out of it. And all of the amazing um, challenges it's bringing to the standardized theories of where the universe started. And I think it's befitting, and I think it's actually kind of humorous. But now many scientists are left with the frantic job of trying to shore up their Big Bang theory. Or they're left with the humiliation of needing to garbage all that they've taught, all that they've researched, and go back to the drawing boards to try once again to find a new godless theory for the origins of the universe well honestly wouldn't it just be simpler to accept that God created everything? Well this particular graphic is a representation of scripture. And it puts all of the claims of the other scholarly or academic group who have challenged Christianity and Christ, the group that says scripture is just dis- disjointed, that it was there's no continuity. That it is written by a whole bunch of people, disconnected. Uh, maybe they had some cultural um, commonalities, but really over the centuries, it's it's really nothing more than just an entertaining book to read. Well, this particularly this particular graphic, I think, does a wonderful job of showing how silly those thoughts are. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about it. These lines along the bottom that you see in varying links, this is Psalm 119, um, so it gives you a context. But those lines about on the bottom indicate the length of chapters that are referred to in other passages in the Bible. So then in between are all of these threads, and each thread, I have to tell you this, do you know how many threads there are? Over 60 Three thousand threads. These are cross-references from one book to another, from one author to another. So tell me there's no continuity, no cohesiveness to Scripture. It's just plain foolishness to believe that. 63,000 plus cross-references. And this diagram, as you dive into it, because you can zoom into parts of it, you can actually see the references Um because it's an interactive visualization. But here's what the, the guys that created this said, and I think it was telling. We set our sights, quoting, on something more beautiful than functional. And at the same time, we wanted something that honored and revealed the complexity of the scriptures. I think they achieved their goal. It really does honor that. Thousands of references to people, places, events, thousands of references quoted and cited from one author to another again and again. The entire Bible has one author God. He used the hands and the heads of multiple scribes, but there is only one author, and there is complete unity in this complexity. It is an amazing thing. But what's that got to do with Philippians? And why do I show you this? Well, frankly, I showed it to you because when I saw it, I thought, wow, this is so amazingly beautiful and powerful. It does reveal that complexity and that unity. But also, it provides an illustration of why our study of Philippians is not going to start in Philippians. Our study of Philippians is going to start in Acts chapter 15, verse 35. We'll get there in just a minute. You see, Paul's letter to the Philippians is very different than his other letters. If you compare it to the letter to the Corinthian church, or you compare it to the letter to the Galatian Christians, or you compare it even to the Ephesian church, the letter to them. The tone of Paul's letter to the Philippian church is very tender and loving, very different than the strong words he has for the Corinthian church and for the Galatian church. Not that there isn't love, but the words he used and chose were much stronger, much firmer. So I asked myself, why? Well, We're going to see more of this in the coming weeks as we work through Philippians, but for now, I want us to just kind of get a grasp from a historical perspective why Paul feels so tender and loving toward the Philippian church. If you will turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts 15. We're going to start reading in 35. Now, I don't have time to read everything I would like to read, and I'm going to read more than most of you would probably like me to read, but um, I want to give you just a little bit of background. Paul and Barnabas have returned to Jerusalem with questions from the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch has sent them to Jerusalem to find out what part of the law they have to adhere to, all right? And so everybody in Jerusalem, all the leadership in Jerusalem, gathered and they came up with a decision. Abide by this and this, and in everything else, you're free. I don't have time to discuss all of those things today. But here we are. Paul and Barnabas have remained in—they took the message back to Antioch, all right, and answered those questions for them from the leadership in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas have remained in Antioch teaching and helping that church, preaching the word of the Lord with many others, and that's verse 35. So let me begin reading. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Paul thought, best not And he went through Syria and Sicily, Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For, all, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed... There was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who, was, one who heard was, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay turned and said to the spirits, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that her, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking him, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stalks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire whole household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates came. They sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I know that's a significantly long chapter, but there's a point in reading that much scripture. One, it's scripture. What better use of our time? Two, it illustrates by the volume of what is covered that happened in Philippi, how important Philippi is. Luke recognized it when he recorded this. There are more verses written to the, about what happened in Philippi than there is any other church with the exception of Ephesus. I didn't actually count the Philippian verses versus the Ephesus verses, but the number of paragraphs is fewer for Ephesus than it is for Philippi, and all the others are covered in two paragraphs max. This is a significant place for Paul. It was a significant place on this, his second missionary journey. The first was with Barnabas and barely covered Sicilia and Syria. This missionary trip has covered a lot of ground. And now they are in Philippi. Barnabas and Paul separate. It had to be very difficult. And it had to be pretty hot. We're not told much, except that they separated. Barnabas heads southwest to Cyprus. Paul, and he takes John Mark with him, Paul heads northwest with an eye to Syria, Sicilia, Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's where he wants to go. And he takes Silas with him. And later... He finds Timothy and takes him with them. And at some point, Luke joins the entourage. Don't know exactly where. But you see it when he starts to refer to himself in these passages, when he starts using the word we. We did this. We went there. So Luke joins. So now we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke traveling together. You see, Paul had an ambition Um, There used to be a song, uh, one true and holy passion. Remember, something about ambition is in there. Um, That's what I want for my life. Paul had that ambition. Romans 15, 20 to 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard, Will understand, And this is one of those citations he's quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 15. So Paul lays out his plans, all right? He's going to Asia. He travels northwest to do so. But God forbids it. That's pretty strong language. Paul's a pretty determined guy. And I think he needed the strong language to know, no, you're not going there. You thought you were going there, but you're not going there. So, by now, Paul and his team have traveled at least 1,000 miles by foot. 15 to 20 miles a day was what the average was by foot. So he's traveled at least a thousand miles to find out he can't go where he wanted to go. So, Paul being Paul, he then travels southwest. No, I'm sorry. He then changes his objective and he wants to go to Bithynia. All right, now Bithynia is to the east. And so now he's traveling northeast or possibly direct east, depending on where he was at the time. But we're also told that the spirit of Jesus did not allow him. So once again, Paul's laid his plan, and God has said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to Bithynia. I don't want you in Bithynia. You stay away from Asia, and you stay away from Bithynia. So Paul being Paul, he travels to the area of Mysia. And in Mysia, I think he has on his trip... He has an opportunity to do some thinking, and where does he end up? He ends up in the city of Troas. Troas is a coastal city in the province of Mysia. He's had all of his plans thus far, and direction stopped and changed by Christ. I think he goes to Troas, and this is my supposition. I think he goes there because, one, it's a port city. And two, because it's a port city, he can now travel north, south, west, and even east. I think Paul's finally got it. Paul, I'm God, and I'm going to tell you where to go. And then God does a marvelous thing. He reveals in a vision to Paul that his plans for him are to go into Macedonia. So what does Paul do? him Try to find a different way? Try to find a different place? No. It says that he immediately departs by a direct voyage. And it is a straight line from where he went. From Troas to Samothrace, which is a city on an island, and then to Neapolis. Two days, generally a five day journey. In two days he covers the ground. Immediately is the right word. Now he arrives in Philippi, and what does he find? He doesn't find a synagogue. How many heads of household, male heads of household, does it take to establish a synagogue? Well, fewer. Ten. It takes 10 Jewish households to establish a synagogue. There is no synagogue in Philippi. So what does he do? He does what every good Jew would do at that time, and that he goes to the river, because that's where people would gather when they didn't have a synagogue. And so he goes to the river supposing that he's going to find a group of people there gathered to pray. And sure enough, he does. It's a river, and who does he find? Devout women. And he also finds Lydia. You know, i am This is off topic, but I have heard it said so many times by women particularly that God doesn't like women. Um, I've also heard men say such things, that, that he always deals harshly with women, or he doesn't deal with women at all, or he treats them as second-class citizens. Follow me. If you are familiar with Scripture, you are going to see how many times God passes by men in order to accomplish his goal through women. Now, we can spend a whole study on that if you'd like, and I would love to do that, because honestly, women... If you think you have a lesser role in the church of Jesus Christ, you are confused and deluded. Because here, in Philippi, we have a beautiful illustration of what God does. He brings him to a river. He finds a group of women. They join in prayer. He preaches the gospel to them. And then a leading woman of the community, Lydia, A dealer in purple, which is a rare commodity, she was clearly wealthy, is part of that group and accepts Christ, the first Christian convert in Europe. Pretty significant. The first Christian convert in in Europe, Lydia. The second major event, because there are three of them, The second major event that occurs is that exorcism of the demon out of the slave girl. It led to Paul and Silas being beaten and thrown into prison. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like good news to me. And I'm not exactly somebody who would particularly look for those opportunities. (laughs) In fact, I'd probably run the other direction. And I'm not sure that Paul was looking for it either, but he was being faithful And in that, his irritation, not sure of timing, but his irritation produced the situation where he and Silas end up in prison. But you know what? The third major event happened as a direct result of God's providential use of that event. The Philippian jailer comes to Christ. And if you have any familiarity with uh, Roman culture or the culture of the East during this period of time, you know jailers weren't exactly what you'd call honorable people. And they tended to be exceedingly cruel. And when we're told that he threw them into the inner chamber and ordered that their feet be bound in the stocks, you cannot bet that he actually had them thrown pushed with force into that inner chamber and their feet bound in the stops. And so it's not a surprise when all of these prison doors open and he realizes what has happened that he takes his sword to kill himself because it's far less horrifying than having the Roman government take issue with you as a jailer and have all of the prisoners Escape. So he takes his sword and he's going to kill himself. And Paul yells out, Don't! We're all here! And he comes and he calls for light. That's a little detail that sometimes we just kind of run across. But he calls for light because there is no light, there are no windows, um, there's no air circulating nicely through those environments. There's no nice bathrooms. These are hell holes where men suffer and die. There is unspeakable filth and awfulness in these places. But he sends for the light to be brought. And he who sends or commands for the light to be brought gets light himself. Because the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ enters this man almost immediately when he sees that Paul and Silas, who have been singing, though they've been beaten and bound and thrown into a prison, they have been praying and singing and all the prisoners have been listening. All right, so I kind of recapped for you. I read it for you, and i recapped for you. Now I want us to look at what lessons we can learn from this passage of Scripture and from these experiences. The first lesson is that man plans, God directs. In Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Plan what you will if the lord doesn't want that plan that plan will not succeed so rather than fight surrender proverbs 19:21 many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the lord that will stand god's purposes stand not our plans and then james 4:13 to 16 come now you who say Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we will live and do this or that. Man plans, but God directs. The second lesson is that twists and turns in our journey are God's to command. Ours is to obey. Changes in course are normative. They're normal for us, and yet we fight them tooth and nail. But changes in course are normative. Obstacles are not random. There is nothing that escapes the providential plan of God. He knowed he knowed he knew before you were born who you would be when you would live, when you would die. He knew every thought you would ever think. Of. He knew every place you would ever live. He knew every relationship you would ever have, and what's more, he providentially planned it all. God is sovereign, and he is providential in his rule. Ours is to obey, accept God's direction. It's always the best way. To push ahead only brings grief. And I wish I had time this morning to take you on a survey of the scriptures where I could prove that truth to you. How many times men and women throughout scripture have tried to circumvent God's plan and purpose, only to find their own lives in ruin. What are you doing? Have you surrendered to Christ and his will for your life? Have you given over the right to make your own decisions? Are you taking those things that come into your life through the word of God for verification and sanctification? It's a question we all have to ask. I have to ask it a lot. And again, I wish I could give you some examples of when I didn't do that very well. But to save myself the embarrassment, we'll move on. The third thing... And and one of the most important, but not the most important, but one of the most important things we learn from this is how to handle adversity. Verse 25 of chapter 16. What did Paul and Silas do once they had been beaten, stripped naked, walked through the streets, thrown into prison, and their feet fastened into stocks? What did they do? Oh, woe is me! I'm so uncomfortable on this solid wood or solid brick floor. Blah blah. No, what did they do? They broke out in prayer and singing. So joyful, so powerful was what they did in that adversity that all of the prisoners were listening. Can you imagine it? A Roman prison. Was not full of the best of society, generally. It was all of a rabble. Not always. You could get it in the disfavor of a magistrate and find yourself in prison. But generally speaking, we're talking about murderers and thieves, thugs. And every one of them is listening to Paul and Silas sing and pray. So, what should we do in adversity? Rejoice. Pray. Sing. And sing your heart out. Sing with joy and exaltation. Sing praise unto the Lord. Not for the circumstances, but because God is God. 1 Peter 1 6 through 7 tells us the other reason that we are to sing it. Not just for ourselves, because it does bring courage to us. But in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of your faith, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what happened to the Philippian jailer. Their rejoicing in the trial brought the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Philippian jailer and his household. And that spread. But the final lesson, and the one that I think, for me, has been very meaningful, and that is, how do you make ugly feet beautiful? Now, I know that seems like it's completely out of context. But as I think about Paul, you you know that within his three primary missionary journeys, he walked nearly 10,000 miles. And and they didn't have nice hiking boots, you know, made for long hikes. They had sandals, which were a little more than a piece of leather and some straps. Can you imagine what his feet looked like after 10,000 miles? Not, I think, what we would call beautiful. And yet, I think... Maybe we need to rethink. The road was dusty. His feet were surely calloused and scarred by all of the beatings and the walking that they had done. Remember what I told you? Probably not, but I'll remind you of it. Um, what I told you when I was preaching through the church? How beauty is really not in the eyes of the beholder. Beauty is what God says is beautiful. It is his eye that determines what is beautiful. And God says something wonderful about feet. Isaiah 52 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then again in Romans 15 through 16, one of those cross-references. This is Paul. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So how do you make ugly feet beautiful? Preach the good news. You know, men, when your wife tells you you have really ugly feet, like mine has, um, on more than one occasion, (laughs) don't take offense. Instead, consider it a challenge. You want beautiful feet? Let me tell you how to get them. Bring the good news of the gospel to someone. Get up out of your seat and take the good news of the gospel to someone. That's how you get beautiful feet. Instead of fussing over the state of our political environment, speak of the peace that is found in Christ alone. There is no peace anywhere else. Peace only comes through Christ. Speak that peace. Get beautiful feet. And ladies, I know a lot of you desire beautiful feet. And a few of you have them in the physical sense. And I can save you a ton of money. I can. I can save you money on polish. I can save you money on cream. I can save you all those pedicure things you go through. I don't even know what they all are. But I can save that all for you. You don't need it. I know that you have massages. Well, maybe not the massages. Maybe we should keep those in the next. I don't know. That's kind of one of those borderline sort of issues. But you want beautiful feet. Instead, speak to the people around you of the beautiful feet of Christ pierced for our sins. That's how you'll get beautiful feet. Joy in your salvation. Tell others the good news of the joy in Christ that you have because of the salvation he's given to you. And let them know the invitation has been given to them. That's how you get beautiful heat. In the coming weeks, Dan's laid out a whole series through the end of the year. We'll see the depth of love, the rich, lasting relationships, and the lifelong commitment between Paul, Timothy, and the Philippines. Paul's letter to the Philippians is a lingering love letter to them. There is really a depth of joy there and a sacrificial commitment to the Philippian church. So I want to challenge you this next week and actually through the end of the year. I want to challenge you to take the epistle to the Philippians. It's just four chapters and read it through every day. Just four chapters. It's a quick read, I promise you. I've been reading it through since the beginning of September, and I am still amazed at all that there is there for me. I know God will bless that effort if you will put the effort in. Read it. Also come back to these passages in Acts. Read again Acts fifteen thirty-five through sixteen forty. Read those passages, and then come prepared, having read those, to hear the word the Lord has for us. Second Corinthians eight one through five throws insight into the Philippian church. In fact, all of the churches in Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It doesn't take wealth to be generous. It takes joy. Generosity is not based on your bank account. It's based on your heart account. Do you have the joy of the Lord? Is the joy of the Lord your strength? Are you basking in the glory of the joy of the Lord who has forgiven you all of your sins? All of my sins. At the cross of Christ, there is joy. In the sorrow, may Christ in the weeks to come teach us such joy and generosity. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. I ask that you take the words that I've spoken, that are in keeping with Your Word, and that you plant them as seeds. And those words, Lord God, that I spoke out of my own strength or thoughts, I Pray that you'll cause them to be forgotten. May your word, Lord, go out, Lord God, in power, as it always has and always will. For you are the sovereign God. You are the Lord who has willed all things and accomplished that which you set out to accomplish. Thank you that you allow us to participate in this grand plan that you have fashioned before creation. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.